0: Hello, welcome to Remember When. I'm Carl Schultheis, President of the King of Prussia Historical Society, and I'll be your host for this television series. UMGA TV and Historical Society are continuing this series as an oral history project of life and community in Upper Marion Township. In their own words, we want the people who live the history of Upper Marion Township to tell us about that history. This edition features Captain Bob Duber of the Upper Marion Police Department. Bob describes his early years of growing up in Gulf Mills. He later attended school in Upper Marion and served in the Navy during the Vietnam War. After his military service, he joined the Upper Marion Police Department and advanced to the present rank of Captain. Let's sit back and remember when with Captain Bob Duber. Bob, thanks for coming and uh, taking a break in your busy schedule to come and interview with us today. Glad to be here. Understand that uh, you were born and raised here, right here in uh, Upper Marion.
1: Uh, yes, area. I was.
0: Let's go back and tell us about some of the first things you remember.
1: Well, my earliest memories are the old village of Gulf Mills. Now, I was born in 1946 in Gulf Mills, but that's when Gulf Mills consisted of the homes and properties that surrounded Balagomingo Road. This was pre Schuylkill Expressway, and the expressway actually cut 40% of the homes out of what was then golf mills. And some of my earliest memories of old golf mills uh, center around the issues and actually the destruction of the homes in golf mills that occurred then to make way for the the Schuylkill Expressway. We lived, and I can be very specific about this, Mm -hmm. because my brother, Harry, who was born in golf mills as well and lived there much of his uh, young life, uh, he's 15 years older than I, but he's also an artist. And what my brother has done is taken from memory and created a painting of, of old golf mills. Um, he's, he's actually labeled it here at 1944. This is from memory what he uh, experienced growing up, and this would have been in his teenage and, and young 20s, Uh, what golf mills was like. Now, at this point in time, I was only four or five years old uh, when we left golf mills in 1950. Mm -hmm.
0: This was still during the Second World War, actually.
1: Exactly. Yeah, this was during the Second World War. And and just to to briefly explain some of the, the points on the painting, the area you see across the top, the woods and the homes that exist here and here were the homes that were taken when the expressway came through. If you try to visualize today, the off-ramp from the Schuylkill Expressway would come through this area. This is Balagomingo Road. Mm -hmm. This is the service station and store that used to exist on the corner that was run by the McIntyre family. They used to call that Mackey's. And Balagomingo Road intersected right here with what was then Gulf Road or South Gulf Road. Mm -hmm. Now, today, that's Trinity. Trinity Lane because South Gulf Road was relocated. Uh, this monument, this was the World War II monument erected in Gulf Mills to honor the war dead from uh, Gulf Mills and in the surrounding area. Uh, the monument no longer exists. And where it may be today, I have no idea, because the existing expressway bridge spans this area, and that would have been part of what was taken. Um, my brother was pretty good with details. You see there's a school bus crossing the bridge, and this is what they call the bird hand section here. This, the home that sits over here has the, uh, the bird burden hand sign on it. Uh, this is an Upper Marion school bus, not Upper Marion area, mind you, but mm-hmm. Upper Marion school bus. This is a, uh, a milk truck that's crossing the bridge right here, and that's Sunny Slope Dairies. He, he recalled that that was the, the, the dairy that, that served the entire area. But he, uh, I think he, he's, he's done a great job, and for me, it's difficult. There's probably people listening to me right now that would be much more adept and, and detailed in a description of who lived where in which one of these houses. We occupied, my family occupied one of these homes up on the hill, and, and these homes were the ones to go. Now, I actually have a recollection from when I was four years old of of the bulldozers not our home but the ones just before them, actually knocking the homes down the the homes were were pushed over and destroyed and that for some reason that stuck with me but there was there was a great deal of issues that the people that were displaced had at this time Uh, in october of 1949 they were told that they had to leave their homes and be out by the end of April of 1950, they had six months to relocate, six months to deal with any issues surrounding their homes. I mean, they were given what was believed to be a fair market value at that, but there were many, particularly the older people, that lived here their entire lives, that were extremely upset over the fact that they were given six months in which to move. Now, the project which caused that was the Schuylkill Expressway. But the Schuylkill Expressway was vital. It was a vital link to the city. But this was—it was progress at a price. Gulf Mills at that time was was more of a village. Gulf Mills was as much of a, a, a village in Upper Marion Township as you would think of Swedesburg, Swedeland, Rebel Hill
0: mm-hmm.
1: today as villages. Now. What exists today was simply open space then. In other words, all the, the developments and, and, and commercialization that we we have in the township today didn't exist. It was only these villages that created Upper Marion. I mean, there was there was a uh, friendly competition. I guess you could say between golf mills and Rebel Hill right. between golf mills and Sweden or Swedesburg. These communities existed within Upper Marion with only farms and open space in between. Another memory that I have is the open space in the fields. Mm-hmm. As I was growing up as a kid, I mean, there were expanses of large open fields and woods. I, I, I kind of miss that. Most of these were, were either plant workers or production workers. Mm-hmm. These homes that, that are constructed across here came with There was a woolen mill. Now, I'm not an expert on this. The ruins of this old woolen mill was on the other side of the the woods over here. In fact, the foundations of the old woolen mill are still there today. If you look hard enough, near the intersection of the on ramp to the expressway at golf mills, which would be up in here. Mm -hmm. um, And golf road. It would be the home. There's homes that exist there today. If you went into their backyards, you would see uh, the foundations of that, that woolen mill. But then again, my father worked in Wayne. My father worked at the Wayne Iron Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, Allenwood Steel Company was uh, a big employer in this area at that time. Uh, mostly it was it was a blue collar uh, neighborhood, but very closely knit and and the people that lived there then many of them my brother is over 70 he still keeps in touch today with people that he grew up with in golf mills fight I know the Deckert estate uh, had a a revolutionary war area barn on it that unfortunately isn't with us anymore it was on the other side It would be over in this vicinity Uh, and I know there were the hanging rock is the other side of the of the hill so to speak and the historical significance of that and i'm sure that the continental army or a portion thereof passed through this area exactly what may have taken place or the significance in gulf mills proper i'm not sure gulf creek is is what passes under this bridge and this is what you see gulf creek here now there is another painting that that my brother created again from memory uh, but the creek flowed into what was known then as the bow. And again, I'm sure anybody that is familiar with old golf mills will remember the bow because this was a, again, we're going back to 1944 is a is moment in time that my brother chose to record. Mm-hmm. But as a child, I can remember going there. The bow was the center of, of, of community activity. The the local kids and and some adults, they swam there, they ice skated there, they they fished there. This was actually a beautiful pond, as I recall it, that was uh, in, in the center of heavily wooded area. And if you look at the photo behind me, this is what we refer to today as the Sumner Dam. This, this is the other side of the falls, and this photo was taken about three years ago. Unfortunately, this view of of the bow—I don't—I don't recall it as the Sumner Dam. To me, it's always going to be the bow, because there was a, a breach in the in the dam wall that only occurred within the last several months, and and this view no longer exists either. And this is a there's a topic of controversy out there today over what to do with this this site. But just from a historical perspective, it meant a, a lot to the community back then. I can remember personally, and right where the, the two children are depicted sitting on the wall right here, as about a five-year-old being here with my brother and his wife, as I recall, I wandered over to a gentleman who happened to be fishing right there in that spot. And I was I was amazed. I'd I'd never seen fish caught before, and I I wanted to know exactly what he was doing. And he was kind enough to He took out his knife and he cut a a stick from a a branch nearby. He tied on a piece of fishing line, put a hook on it, put some bait on the hook and said, here, kid, try it. And I caught a fish. And that man has no idea, and I'm sure it never entered his mind, but he planted a seed. I've been fishing ever since. I've spent more time and money on fishing since that one episode in that one spot over the years. But, I mean, the bow was, again, it was a community center. It was where people gathered and had a lot of of fun from the stories that I've heard about it. Sumner Dam. I assume that that's the owner property. Well, the property it, it was actually initially this was part of the Deckard estate. The Deckard estate was huge, and I I'm not I can't be accurate with the um, with the Deckard and and the their the family and the size of the estate or exactly how that fit in, but at one point in time, Deckard sold out to a, a Sumner, I believe a doctor Sumner, mm-hmm. and the property took on his name. And that's why today it's referred to as the Sumner Dam. But yet to the old residents of the village of golf mills, the way it used to be, it'll always be the bow, which is a shortened version of Balmoral or Balmoral, I've heard some pronounce it that way. That was that was the official name. You can always tell the old timers because it's never Ballygomingo Road, it's Ballygore Road. And it was never the Balmoral, it was the bow. I was born in 1946, but see, my brother would still go back to the bow. Yeah. And take me with him. I mean, even after the house was raised and our family relocated, within that six month period of time, we had to find other places to live. So my father uh, made contact with Bill Keel Sr., who was the father of the Bill Keel that used to work for the township. Right. And Bill Keel Sr. had property for sale in King Manor, another old section of Upper Marion. And my father purchased a building lot from Bill Keel Sr., and that's where our our new home was built, but we never made it, it was never never completed uh, in time to simply move from golf mills to there. There was time, uh, several months spent with relatives and um, other interim places right. to live until our house was ready to move into.
0: And uh, you, you went to school here in Upper Mary?
1: I did, yeah, my, uh, again, it, five or six years old, 1951 or 52, uh, in King Manor. My first school that I attended was the Swedland School because the Swedland School, again, something that's, I wish I had a picture of that, but again, I never took it. The old Swedland School was uh, a beautiful old structure that's been replaced uh, by a townhouse development now, but uh, it was one of Two, I believe, elementary schools that existed in the township at that time, and I want to say the other one was Roberts, and that Roberts was on one end of the township, Sweden on the other, but that was sufficient at that time. Uh, I attended first and second grade in the Sweden School. By the time I was ready for third grade, which would have been about 1953 or 4, the uh, Gulf Road Elementary School was completed as a brand new structure. Uh, I was the first class in that that brand new structure uh, for for third grade and stayed at the the Gulf Road Elementary School for third through sixth grade. And we were coming into a time then when uh, there were some rapid changes being made in Upper Marion. That expressway project was successfully completed and the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike Project was underway. Now, when we moved from Golf Mills to King Manor, we were we were displaced by the fact that this new highway had come through, this necessary new connection. So we moved to King Manor, but we really didn't move out of sight of construction because I can still recall the Pennsylvania Turnpike under construction. We could see it from our our front yard in King Manor to look across the field as it uh, it came through Upper Marion Township. I can remember you know, the construction equipment and the blasting and so forth. But the boom, mm-hmm. the, the, the big changes that were on the horizon occurred naturally when both of those highways were finished. When the, when the expressway mm-hmm. met the turnpike, and this would have been later in the 1950s. From my school mm-hmm. experience, from Gulf Road Elementary, mm-hmm. didn't have to go far because it was right across the way at the old Upper Merion High School. The old red brick building that uh, served as Upper Merion High School for many, many years was uh, where I went to school in seventh and eighth grade. Now we're up to 1960. And if you look at the plaque on the side of the existing Upper Merion High School, you'll find that that was the year that they, they opened the doors. And what they did was combine the freshman class with uh, everyone else that went You know, So there was ninth through twelfth grade in that first year. So I guess I never looked at it from this perspective, but I was part of the the first class that went into the uh, Gulf Road Elementary School. And I was also in another brand new building, the first class that went into the new high High school. school. The old high school was kept open for Another, a brief period of time uh, 1963 I believe was the opening date for the middle school and then the uh, the old high school ceased to be operational it's ironic because Upper Marion back then Upper Marion in the late 1950s Tiny Upper Marion was playing Tiny Swarthmore here we are in 2003 and a somewhat larger more expanded Upper Marion is playing Haven, which is simply another name for Swarthmore. Okay. So sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah. um, but the old high school, there was a, uh, a store right across the street from it that was very popular. That was Campbell's Store. Now, Campbell's Store eventually became Schultz's Exxon. Uh-huh. And I think Franny, Franny Schultz sold out, and now somebody else is in that location. But that corner has always been a, a, a little commercial corner right there. Mm-hmm. And I can remember as a kid going to Upper Marion football games at the old high school and walking across Henderson Road into Campbell's store for a soda and candy, ice cream, whatever it was, and coming back to the game. Um, yeah, I, I hated to to see that building become commercialized in some ways, but yet they've retained a lot of it as it was. And I can still look at it and visualize it as it was and and, and see myself in and around that area and, and what it was way back when. I played football, I played football for one year in high school, I played baseball for two years in high school, I was on a a gymnastics team in high school. It wasn't, that was an intramural kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It didn't somehow have the significance that it has today. I I didn't think, I didn't see it. It seems like today, kids today get so uh, expert, Mm-hmm. in what they do. They pick their, their area of expertise and concentrate on it and just excel. Um, and I, that's a good thing.
0: Do you remember any, any of your teachers in high school?
1: Um, or in other, in other years? Let me think back. Let me think back. Mrs. Bowen was my third through sixth grade teacher at the, uh, I think, she, Well, I can even go back before that, Mrs. Pollock, who lived in, in a uh, section of golf mills, as I recall, not exactly in off of Balago Road, but Mrs. Pollock was my first and second grade teacher at the Sweden School. Um, Mrs. Bowen was my teacher through third through sixth grade. And then naturally in, in seventh grade, we went into the high school setting where there were their numerous, numerous teachers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mr. Freese, I remember him well, Mr. Barber. Mr. Yo was the principal of Upper Marion. Uh, high school at that time. And then when I moved into the the new senior high, Bob Strine was the principal at the mm-hmm. senior high. And some of the people I remember well, uh Ogie Martello was the f- mm-hmm. uh football coach. Uh, he's since passed. Um Frank Wright, uh my math teacher and, and baseball uh coach. There's there's a lot of good memories. If I had a yearbook to glance through, I could probably be right on the money with yeah.
0: that. Any special incidents in high school that you remember?
1: You know, I, there's not nothing that really stands out in my mind. Uh, we have our 40th year reunion coming yeah. up next year. It's yeah. already planned. The class of 1964, yeah. Upper Merion High the School, school. Uh, is planning a reunion at the uh, Valley Forge Hilton. Yeah. So uh, there'll be some stories told then. I'll be i be
0: sure
1: there'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. there'll be. Uh, there's party stories to yeah. tell there about. Do you remember this one? Do right. you remember that yeah. one? And most of it's involves something to do with pulling something over on the police. You <laughs> <Yeah>. see, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> caught in the middle of that. In 1964, I graduated. Uh, one year, I tried to determine what I wanted to do. This was the Vietnam era. My number was up for the draft uh, and uh, that was a big issue back uh, in that sure at that point in time. So I, I thought I'd take advantage of being able to enlist. And so I enlisted in the Navy. Mm-hmm. I spent the next four years, 1965 through 1969, uh, two, of it, a naval, two of those years at a Naval Air Station and two of those years aboard the USS Carl C. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that time, I did a, a Western Pacific cruise. Uh, it was home ported in Alameda, California. Uh, saw most of of the Orient, we, you know, we Japan, Philippines, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, saw much of that part of the world uh, was involved in the, the Gulf of Tonkin operations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then in uh, actually in 1968, I was married. I met a, my wife Sharon uh, while I was stationed at Lakehurst Naval Air Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I had, a. we were only married for a few months when I had to say goodbye and uh, went on that Vietnamese, on that Vietnam cruise for another year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we were able to, she was able to join me and we lived on the West Coast for some time. And then in September of 1969, we drove back cross country, leisurely drove back cross country. And then it was uh, time to find a an occupation. Mm-hmm. And I happened to... Uh, see an ad in the Norristown Times-Herald that said that the Upper Marion Township Police Department was uh, testing for police officers. So I said, why not? I think that's a great idea. That's something that that appeals to me, that interests me. Mm -hmm. So took the test, Um, successfully took the test. And in December of 1969, myself and one other who, uh, John Brennan, this is not John Brennan, who you have interviewed on this show, this mm-hmm. is what we, who we used to call, we used to separate him by saying young John. This would have been young mm-hmm. John Brennan, uh, okay. who has since left our, uh, our police department, and myself were hired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and We started in, in December of 1969, mm-hmm. and uh, coming up on my 33rd anniversary I've, of, of my appointment here. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what was the police department like at that time?
1: Well, I was hired by Chief Donald C. Beecraft. Sure. Don B. Craft, uh and my, my background investigation was conducted by Sergeant Clement Riddell, okay. yeah. who was uh, answering to Lieutenant John Dunleavy. Uh-huh. And I had the privilege of working with uh, Al Hume, um, Carl DeHaven, Joe Dudas. All the original people that, that you know made the, yeah. the police department that so many people in the township could think back and say well i I, I knew them
0: yeah.
1: and it was it was different then. I mean today some of our emphasis is on community policing well, Upper Marion Township at that time, we didn't need a community, that was a foreign term to me, because it it was always community policing. We were close with the community. We knew people, you know, say the name, say, you know, don't tell me the address, who is it? You know, I I know, you knew people, and people knew you, Mm -hmm. and you communicated with, with people on a daily basis. But somehow, growth that occurred again through through the 70s and so forth it 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 changed all that Uh, where today it is necessary to reach out to the community formally reach out with with programs and projects to to get the police and the community back together but back in the beginning really wasn't the case because there was it's just not the numbers of people that you had to deal with so there was always a a much closer relation one of the things that i can relate to then and now. Most of our crime then, and it was it was never a serious crime problem, but the crime problem we had was local homegrown crime. I mean, we had a certain percentage of residents of Upper Merion who committed crimes regularly. Mm-hmm. Well, as the years went by, that percentage went smaller and continued to drop. And, and today, it's a minuscule number of incidents and crimes that occur in Upper Merion that are committed by Upper Merion residents. Now, I don't know what that means socially. I'm not sure the social significance of that, but most of our crime comes from other people from other places. Um, we I can say this, though, we did have much more, particularly after the Vietnam era and the early 1970s, late 1970s, into the early 80s. The returning Vietnam veterans brought a lot of their problems with them, and I I was one of them, so I could sympathize with these guys. But we did have uh, a a localized drug problem at that time that was, I think, as serious as it's ever been as far as serious addiction and actual death due to overdose Mm -hmm. and so forth because these, these people were addicted to heroin and that heroin addiction had a lot to do with the Vietnam experience. Yep. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that the drug problem doesn't exist today, but mm-hmm. it doesn't exist t- uh, to that extent with that very dangerous this type drug. of drug. Okay. Um, and I hope we never return to that. In coming
0: back after World War II, the Korean War, your reception was a lot different, I'm sure.
1: Well, at the, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I've never had so many peace signs flashed in my direction. When I first became a patrol officer on the street in the early 1970s, you police were viewed as as part of the uh, political establishment that supported the war in Vietnam and the popular opinion was not not to do that. And and as soon as you became involved in any kind of confrontation um you know, the term pig was mm-hmm. was common and it was uh, used frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, young kids would come up to you and flash peace signs to you as though this, the, the stereotypical image of a cop was someone who was connected with and mm-hmm. supported in every way uh, mm-hmm. the effort that was underway in Vietnam. And In many cases, that couldn't have been further from the truth. But once you put the uniform on, you're a representative of the government, and if you represent the government, and the government isn't popular at that moment in time, that's the result.
0: Tell us a little bit about your career
1: in the, in the police department. Well, it's it's been a diverse career. And I can say, you know, most people say, well, how do you be a cop for 33 years? Well, to that I can say, my first seven years, I was a patrol officer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I learned that. I enjoyed that, but then I, I was fortunate enough to be put into the detective division, where I spent the next nine years as a detective, which is a totally—I won't say totally different, but it's a—it's a different experience than uh, someone that's—that's that's on patrol.
0: Just tell us about that.
1: I found that to be the most—if I had to go back in my career over the thirty-three years and say that this is what I enjoyed doing and this is what was the most rewarding, I would say that the detective experience was, was it. Uh, you were given follow-up investigations on, on some lesser less serious crimes, all the way up to homicide investigations. Um, the, the, the rules of engagement were the parameters set by the court systems, by the Supreme Court. This is what you can do, this is what you can't do. But I saw it as a challenge that here's a crime, this is when it occurred, this is what we know about it. Uh, go out and in some way, shape, or form, creatively, solve this crime. And, and I found that when I, that I accomplished that, it was a very rewarding experience yes. to, to get to the bottom of, of something and follow it through to a successful arrest and conviction. Uh, I guess what memorable issues, uh, naturally, the, the homicide investigations that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. Now, some even some members of the police department today uh, would have to, would probably question me on this, but I can recall 11 homicides in Upper Marion Township within one mile of the Valley Ford Shopping Center, within a one mile radius of the Valley Ford, Ford Shopping, Shopping Center. Center. Eleven, 11, 11 homicides.
0: Which, uh, tell us about some of the more memorable ones.
1: Well, one of the first ones uh, were the Maley sisters I don't know if, if I'm sure some of the old timers are going to remember the Mailey sisters. They occupied the house that uh, most recently was an antique shop, directly across the street from the current Genardi Shopping Center on Henderson Road, and they ran a nursery. Uh, the Mailey sisters were well liked, um, somewhat up in years, um, outspoken, uh, nice people. I think it was a Sunday morning about 1973, I could be wrong, it could be a a year off in there. They were both found shot to death in the living room of their home. Uh, Dinner was still in the oven that they were preparing for the relatives that were coming to, and that's who discovered them. They were tied and shot. Uh, This was a, a very difficult, uh, long investigation, and I remember one of our old uh, older detectives, who's now deceased, Don Cannon, uh, took that one. You know, if I if I start in recent past, uh, we had homicides: uh, the the dance studio operator in the marquee. I was involved in that as a lieutenant in charge of the investigations division at that mm-hmm. point in time. Uh, the uh, clerk at the Dunkin' Donuts, uh, the jeweler in the Valley Ford Shopping Center the attendant at the Sunoco mark gas station. I'm going back right. in time a little bit yeah. now.
0: That, the jeweler, was, was that uh, involved with uh, the Russian? Yes, uh, that
1: was, you know, there was a recent, well, the, a great deal of time passed from the time that crime was committed. And as I'm trying to think of the, the jeweler's name, it mm-hmm. escapes mm-hmm. me. Uh, but there was a connection there between Russian organized crime and that homicide. And that connection was eventually made. Uh, Detective Bruce Seville worked on that one. And uh, Bronstein was the name of the individual that was eventually uh, convicted of that crime. And this had to do with the uh, statements that he made to others within that organization while he was in prison on other charges and the connection was made. Um, so that was let would say two four i can remember a homicide at the uh, gulf mills village apartments where i was there i mean that was maybe 73 or, or four that was the first homicide i ever i think it was just before or just after the maleys mm-hmm. but that was uh i remember the, the the fellow on the floor in the apartment these these
0: yeah.
1: visions never really go away but he'd been shot once in the chest and uh had a semi-automatic handgun 380 caliber I believe but he had and what we call a stovepipe jam where the shell failed to eject
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there he was with that jam in the gun that he was trying to defend himself against because the guy that was over yeah. him just yeah. and that was a, a love triangle situation mm-hmm. then we had a homicide. Uh, General Armstrong Road, as I recur, uh, I I was involved in that one. In fact, uh, the the Lieutenant at the time, Frank Furlick, the the person responsible for that, that homicide was still in the house and still armed. And I recall, this is one of the things where we get, we have specialization today and thank God for it because we have tactical teams, we have tactically trained people. Who know exactly what to do? Well, mm-hmm. at that point in time, in 19, again, we're back in the mid 70s. The training and specialization wasn't there. Mm-hmm. It was somebody turning and saying, "I want you and you to take take a shotgun out of the car." And he had there was we used to keep in the emergency closet this old heavy. It was almost like a flak vest. put this on World War II flak vest. Put this on and come in the back door. Well, this was the plan. And it worked. Don't misunderstand me. The plan worked. It was just that today that would have been treated so much differently, so much differently. You know, there, there's trained hostage negotiators There would have been right. ways to make contact with this individual. Now, we we went through the back door and uh, eventually took him into custody because he actually. Um unconscious he, he had cut himself during the, mm-hmm. and he became unconscious and passed out and we kind of overwhelmed even took the loaded gun out of his hands but if there's a, a major difference in the way things were done way back when and what's done today mm-hmm. in 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 police work right. it's just the level of training and expertise that's been developed
0: right.
1: there there is I mean our from a tactical team, which I was fortunate enough to be with when we mm-hmm. formed it back in uh, 1987, was when we put this together. Today, that tactical team is, is up and running and part of an organization called SEMCERT, in which eight local police departments contribute uh, manpower and, and equipment and train regularly. And if we have a problem that requires uh, specialized uh, officers and, and special weapons and special tactics, that unit is activated and uh, they're very good at what they do Mm -hmm. and that's why they exist and again way back when you did what you had to do and I can remember other circumstances where you you just dealt with the situation as it arose Um, where today you would you would stop the action uh, contain the the, uh, issue or the people that were involved Mm -hmm and bring in the resources necessary and way back when that's that's not the way it was handled
0: interesting you point out that look all these homicides took place within a mile of valley for a chopping center
1: sometimes i wonder about that now there was another i i don't know i'm up to about let's see six seven eight nine and ten were on old route 202 across from the quarry there was a, a double homicide suicide there in the early 1980s again on love triangle situation uh, but Two people were the victims of the homicide, and then the, the, the shooter actually took his own life. After the tech division, uh, I decided that it was it was time to uh, time for advancement, time to, to to try to move up. So I worked very hard to for a sergeant's position, in, in 1986. Um, I was appointed to a sergeant, which got me out of that great job in the detective division and put me right back out on patrol on the street, working a midnight shift, (laughs) which I started to second guess myself at that point in time if I'd done the right thing. Uh, But for the next six years, Mm -hmm. I was a sergeant uh, on the street with with patrol officers and Mm -hmm. Doing some of the same things that I had done in, in patrol before, but doing it with, from a supervisory perspective and trying to, you know, I was in charge of a, a squad of uh, six or seven, I'll call at that time. And we used to work a rotating schedule at that point in time. And uh, there were, sometimes the incidents that you're involved in, if you say to me, well, what stands out to you, I, sometimes it's a blur. You know, and, and I have to, actually be taken back to a a specific time and place to say what was uh, exceptional or special about it. Then in 1992, uh, I was successful in moving up to the lieutenant's position. Mm -hmm. I became patrol lieutenant, uh, which was good because it was right after being involved in the patrol situation and Realizing some of the problems that existed in patrol at that time, I tried to concentrate on them. Schedule was one of them. Uh, unity of command and and lines of communication were somewhat skewed and my, my purpose at that point in time was to, to correct that and in 1994, I proposed the uh, the 12-hour work schedule and that was adopted I believe, 94, 95, that we finally got that worked into the contract. But that was that was kind of a major hurdle for this organization to go into that 12-hour schedule because we were one of the first larger departments to do it. But what it did, it it, it fixed the platoons or the squads or teams with a sergeant in charge of each who was accountable for those under him and accountable to the patrol lieutenant. And suddenly it put some organization into the organization, so right. to speak. And, and plus the the way the schedule worked, um, I believe it, it helped the social lives of, of the officers that had to work it. Mm-hmm. I mean, police normally have high um, divorce rates. There's, there's conflicts that occur because of the nature of the work. And many times the schedule that police have to work is, is creates the conflicts, holidays, weekends, mm-hmm. nights, I mean that that's okay initially when you say yeah that's what I want to do, but somehow when you're in the seventh eighth or tenth year of that, it wears on a on a relationship. Well, this new schedule created time. It created time off, quality time, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a good thing. So it was working in both ways. It was working to um, improve the relationships of of the officers, their their home life as well as reorganize and, and control the organization better. So it, it was a win-win to do that. When you
0: say you're in a 12-hour schedule, you work three days?
1: Well, the way this works is you, we have two shifts. Mm-hmm. One works 7 in the morning till 7 at night, and the other works 7 at night till 7 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rotation's a little bit hard to follow, but if, I, if, you, if, you, if you work Monday, Tuesday, you're off Wednesday, Thursday. That means you work Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Which means you're off the following Monday, Tuesday. You work the next Wednesday, Thursday, and you're off the following Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Which means every other weekend is a three-day weekend. Mm-hmm. That's valuable family time Correct. that is now available. It, it enhanced our ability to uh, cover the township. It actually increased manpower on the street at any given time because it was two shifts rather than three. Uh, that was that was. I feel that was one of my. Mm-hmm contributions or accomplishments at at that point in time but that wasn't the end you see because that was patrol lieutenant Mm -hmm. and shortly after that i moved to investigations lieutenant and that uh, again very very interesting time however there were there were two homicides that i had to coordinate and oversee during that time period and that would have been the one i mentioned at the marquee and, and the Dunkin Donuts homicide. And they were the, the two outstanding cases that stand out in my mind. I mean, there was everything else was going on at the same time. But those two cases, and I give all the credit in the world to Detective Jeff McCabe, who worked closely with county detectives as well as the rest of our detective division. Mm-hmm. But he was what I call my lead detective on both of those. And uh, both of the uh, perpetrators on those crimes are doing prison time today. Mm-hmm. Um, we made some some excellent advances during the uh, in nineteen ninety i'm going to say ninety six although it, again it could be ninety five one of the largest problems that we had in upper Marion Township was auto theft. Uh, there were five hundred and twelve vehicles stolen, and that's what i'm saying remember when that was almost the same year that we became participants in the Southeastern Auto Theft Task Force. Upper Marine Police, Pennsylvania State Police, Delaware County Detectives, Philadelphia Police concentrated on nothing but penetrating these auto theft rings. Last year, 2002, we lost 87 vehicles. And I give all the credit in the world to that and I can remember when right. it was out of control it's not yeah. at this point in time that was a huge uh, amount of progress and oh, absolutely in, in, into, yeah. you know the insurance companies sponsored this they, they funded this and and whoever's idea it was within this conglomerate of insurance companies to say hey we're going to fund and, and give and facilitate the formation of this task force with no other purpose than to go out and stop auto theft in the Philadelphia area, they saved millions. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. The, uh, uh, the 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 area of the theft was primarily the shopping centers, or where, where were you well, saying? the
1: Plaza Court complex took the the brunt mm-hmm. of, of the auto theft, but yet it was it was township wide. The hotels, motels, mm-hmm. parking lots, mm-hmm. um, you know, SEPTA parking, uh, it was just. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. However, you know the Plaza Court complex would get most of the credit, and I remember every year we would get calls from the media wanting to know, well, how bad is it this year? It, you know, and that usually was this time of year, right yeah. before the Christmas season, yeah. when they're they're trying to improve their image and their relations, and the press always looking for the you know right. the story. Yeah. My next position? Can I, move, can I go on yeah. again? Yeah. Yeah. I just See, see I, yeah. there's there's all these chunks yeah. of time and all these positions that I found myself in it's all different mm-hmm. it's not as if exif- okay 33 years as a cop no mm-hmm. it's all these sections of time that all have different uh, responsibilities to, to, to fill mm-hmm. uh, the next one was auxiliary services lieutenant which involved in the communications uh, um, the auxiliary police school crossing guards um, certain building and facility responsibilities uh, that one i saw as a challenge in improving and this is when i i my age isn't that of someone who is totally computer literate yet i've been fascinated by computers so when i moved into the uh, auxiliary services position what i wanted to do was see if how much we could improve our our communications process through data transfer Mm -hmm. as early as 1992, Upper Marion Police Department had mobile data terminals. Now, let me regress. Back in 1970, when I first came on the department, the police department, my initial assignment was on the desk as a dispatcher. And if somebody was stopping a vehicle on the street or somebody you know in the car, they would radio that in or they would discover what they thought was a suspicious vehicle or an abandoned vehicle, and they would ask me to find out, they'd give me the registration number, and I would reach over to this long bookcase that had dozens and dozens of black books in it that listed every registration number in the state of Pennsylvania in numerical order Mm -hmm. and with the letter placement, and I'd go down that list and I'd look over and try to find, and and try to identify who this vehicle belonged to. Mm -hmm. That was a 15 to 20 minute process, at least depending on what else may have been going on at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. Mobile data terminals in the police cars enable officers to simply pull up the screen Mm -hmm. for that, punch in the numbers of that registration, push a button, and within a second and a half, everything's in front of them, including the owner of the vehicle, whether that vehicle is stolen, if there's any history on that vehicle, if there are any wants or warrants for the person that vehicle is registered to. So between 72 and 92, we're only talking about a 20-year span, but those tremendous advances were made technologically. But I wanted to go beyond that. And where we're at today, I mean, Upper Marion has just made advances that I don't think there's any other local police department that's doing what we're doing today. We have uh, Panasonic Toughbook laptop computers in every patrol car. Powerful computers that are able to deal with um, several issues at the same time. One of the projects that I started and Lieutenant Tom Nolan just finished, because I moved out of that posi- out of that auxiliary services position to captain, was what we call our, our wireless land service. We have a tower on top of the Sea uh, Building at, at uh, Marquee Apartments right now, which is one of the highest structures or the highest structure. Yeah township that has a directional antenna that is aligned with an antenna on top of the township building. Both of those what they call bridges work together. There is a conical shaped area about 180 degrees basically covering the 202 corridor. Our patrol cars now can simply touch an icon on the screen and come up on our records management system software and 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 simply file their reports as they sit in the po- patrol car from the street wirelessly, yeah. which I think is a, a huge step forward. They don't have to come in here to do anything. Mm-hmm. They can access the database. They they can they can write reports and supplemental reports. They they can function on the street as if they were seated behind a desk here in the building. Now. A lot of the township isn't accessible yet because we still we have one access point now. Mm-hmm. But our plans are to add 15 similar access points. The access points work with the fiber optic cable system that goes throughout every township facility. The township garage, the farm, the sewer plants, wherever that fiber optic cable exists, if there's an access point, we can come right back in mm-hmm. and be be here for you know again as if that patrol car or that that officer was seated at, at any workstation in the building <coughs> um, again yeah you know, i i get excited about that because it's 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 the step that i envisioned mm-hmm. and it, it's in place mm-hmm. now yeah. it's working now once we put more of these access points and sense. and that goes back to the time when you know the technology simply didn't exist, and, and you could accomplish so little based technology-wise. Right. And today, all the, the data is at your fingertips. Some of the other advances that we never had, I mean, Upper Marion Police, for as long as I can remember, particularly when I was in the detective division, we have a problem in that we have the largest shopping mall in the country, right. arguably. Right. And I, I still say it is. But the largest shopping mall in the country produces a great deal of retail theft, shoplifting. Right. And the people that are arrested for retail theft are routinely brought into our station to be processed. Well, up until 1998, we used to play the name game. Who are you? Where do you live? What's your date of birth? What's your social security number? And some detectives got very good at this. You know, they, they knew how to verify this and were able to... to be certain who they were dealing with and other wants and warrants on this person. Occasionally we missed the boat entirely. you know where we're, we're a wanted person walked away because they told us they were somebody they weren't. But then this, this other technology technological advance occurred not too many years ago called live scan. Uh, live scan is is 10 fingerprint recording system that digitizes fingerprints, ships that information off immediately to Harrisburg. And within 15 minutes of that live scan, that comes back with whatever criminal record may exist, positively identifying the person whose fingerprints are there. So we don't play the name game anymore. And that, see all this lends itself to productivity as well. You can be much more productive with this kind of technology uh, at your fingertips, so to speak, okay. whether it's it's with a okay. computer or a keyboard finger. or whether you're doing it on the, uh, on the, on the live scan. Right. Uh, what fits in right, w- with that, with the live scan, is the uh, photo identification system that we now have. We have access to the state, the entire state, plus the city of Philadelphia, mug shots, photos. We contribute to it. We can go to it. We can take from it. It's it's all there. It's all, it's all available to us. So so these things weren't even dreamt of. You know, if you said to somebody in, in the mid-1970s that this would exist today, they'd say, mm-hmm. where have you been drinking? Or <laughs> <laughs> where, you know,
0: where do you get this stuff? Where do you
1: get this <laughs> stuff? You know, you've been reading too many uh, science fiction books. Yeah. But we do things today that were unimaginable back then. Yeah. But yet we functioned back then. We still got the job done. Upper Marion Police Department's never really lost its its reputation as a, you know, a, a solid, progressive organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you have to give credit to everybody, you know, the, the leaders of the organization through the years. But the advancements that they made during the time that they were here uh, are somehow... They lose their significance when you see how far we've gone since and, and what's happened. But yet the organization has always functioned well.
0: That's it for this edition of Remember When. I'm Carl Schulteis, president of the King Approach of Prussia Historical Society, and your host for this series of Upper Marine Township's Oral History. If you would like to make a suggestion or comment on this program, please use the following contact information. Thanks for watching, and until next time and always. Remember when?